0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network and the New Books in Jewish Studies channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Ari Barbalat and I'm honored today to be in dialogue with Dr. Sarah Abravaia-Stein. We are here today to discuss her newly edited volume with Dr. Omar Boom, Wartime North Africa: A Documentary History, 1934 to 1950. Dr. Stein, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today.
1: Um, thank you so much, Ari.
0: To begin, please tell us about yourself. Were there any formative events in your life that inspired your interest in North Africa and the Holocaust in North Africa? Is there any connection between this volume and your life story?
1: Uh, thanks, Ari. Well, um, professionally, I'm a historian of modern jewelries. Uh, and my research through my career has focused on the Mediterranean and um, broader um, Middle East, but also in conversation with um, European history, with um, colonial histories, with global histories. Um, and much of my work has focused on um, either the Sephardic heartland of southeastern Europe. Um, and or sometimes in combination, um, North African, North African jewelries. And my interest in these areas um, is less personal, I would say, and um, although I do have connections um, to some of these histories in, in my genealogy, but more importantly to me, um, I became interested in the, in the beginning of my career in regions and um, actors and questions that had been um, overlooked or marginalized by a mainstream Jewish historical account. Um, and when it comes to Holocaust history, in some sense, I would say my teaching preceded my scholarship. This is um, a topic that I have taught through the course of my career uh, for 14 years at UCLA, and before that for nine years at the University of Washington. Um, and it was really only after teaching this difficult but also profound material that um, to large lecture classes, mostly first years at these big public universities in the context of GE classes that take from a whole swath of campus, that my own research interest in the area began to deepen. And um, I have worked on Holocaust history, both in the context of um, the southeastern European Sephardic diaspora and uh, its emigre centers. So that is to say, um, Greece, uh, Bulgaria, Um, surrounding areas, but also where Jews fled in the course of the war and subsequently got caught up in the Nazi dragnet, but also um, North Africa. And I've worked in um, an earlier project on Algeria. And now with um, Omar Boom, I'm really pleased to have these two books that seek to explore the Second World War as it took shape uh, and as it reverberated through North Africa um, in areas that were occupied by Vichy France, by fascist Italy, and by Nazi Germany. Um, And we have really been stunned by the complexity of this context and by the challenge and opportunity of seeking out the voices of people who lived through these
0: histories. What story and or stories does your book tell? What are the primary themes that come across in this volume?
1: Well, the recent book, Wartime North Africa, is a documentary history meant to be used in the classroom, uh, but also for general interest readers as well as specialists. And it is an attempt to bring together a a sampling of the tremendously wide variety of um, lives that were affected by, shaped by both the Second World War and the Holocaust and sometimes both. So this includes um, local North African Muslims, local North African Jews. It includes refugees from Europe, whether they are Christian or Jewish, um, fleeing the rise of Nazism, it includes um, the extraordinary stories of the young Black African and Muslim North African uh, men who and boys who were pressed into service by um, the first French, the Third Republic, and then subsequently by Vichy France um, and conscripted and forcibly um, served under the French flag. Um, and many other actors, people who had bought men who had volunteered for the Spanish Republican Army, found their way to, to France after Franco's victory, and then in, in um, were sent to camps. So um, it, the book in total is an attempt to weave together uh, a variety of local voices, um, detailing these experiences of the war. It also extends to some North Africans who are in Europe, who actually, um, whose fate follows a somewhat different path, um, including Jews who are deported from France, uh, Jews of North African origin deported from France, who will um, lose their lives in in Auschwitz and other Nazi death, death camps.
0: Can you kindly tell us about the translators who helped you Work with the sources in this volume. Who were they? How did you meet them? What difficulties did they face? How did they overcome these obstacles?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, For the most part, we worked, Omar Boom and I, worked with our graduate students um, at UCLA, a wonderfully talented group of students who. who work on North Africa themselves or work on cognate topics uh, and who are um, conversant in uh, many, many languages for their, for the purposes of their own research. Um, and as you mentioned, we, we do have a lot of translations in this volume. Um, we include sources from Arabic, French, Hebrew, Italian, uh, North African, Judeo-Arabic, uh, Moroccan, Darija, Spanish, um, Berber, Tamazight, and Yiddish, as well as sources that were originally written in English. Um, so we worked very closely um, with our translators. Um, between the two of us, actually, I think we could read all of the languages that the, that the student translators were working in, um, but we needed their um, sometimes more able assistance um, and their perspectives. So Um, This was a collaborative project and it really excited us, um, Omar and I, to work with our um, advanced students on a project that was really designed for a student audience. And you asked about challenges. There are, um, as everyone who has worked with sources in multiple languages knows, there are infinite challenges in um, the process of translation and in trying to honor the voices of of historical actors whose uh, original prose might not have been um, uh, perfectly clear or in some cases even highly literate. And to, to render it accessible to a broad readership. So we were interested here for uh, just to offer just one example. Um, there was one quite amazing source um, written by a woman interned um, who uh, whose, whose native language was not French but was writing um, in French um, to a philanthropic organization while she was inter- interned in a Vichy, overseen camp in North Africa, and she writes um, the philanthropic organization to plead for support for herself and her child um, who are in uh, duress in the camp. And um, that source is um, very difficult to understand, full of misspellings, um, grammatically a mess, and yet captures the poignancy and the desperation of um, a woman um, caught... In a, in a context far from, from the one she knew best, operating in a language she did not knew, know well, seeking to do the very best that she could for herself and her child. And so we employed a kind of creative translation um, to render the spirit of, of her original source, um in english without smoothing it out and that that translation was um was conducted by um rebecca glassberg who um wrote that was a, a lead translator for this project and the source that i'm talking about um is by a woman named m beckerman who was writing from the camp of Aïshi to um the representative of the philanthropic organization uh, the famous ellen um, benatar who was a moroccan Jewish lawyer and activist who during the war um, represented um, major philanthropic organizations in North Africa. So that is just an example of one of the ways we both contended with the challenge of translation, but also sought to employ it creatively um, to impress upon our students the complexity of historical documents, which contain the very messiness of the people Um, and cultures, and um, dramatic context that produced them.
0: Separate from your translators, there are many people who you think in your acknowledgments. Would you like to express gratitude to any of them here? What assistance did they provide? How did they support you materially and morally?
1: Well, there are many people that we thank here, um, and I would hate to to relist um, a set of acknowledgements that are very dense, but I really appreciate your question because it allows me to speak about the way in which working on this topic specifically, that is the experience of, um, of wartime North Africa, really hinged on a collaborative effort of many parties. So among those who we thank in the acknowledgments are a number of families who have retained materials um, of their ancestors uh, and were willing to share them. Um, provide us the right to publish them, in some cases to help us elaborate on the documentary traces that they maintained. And we're so grateful to those families um, and individuals who shared these real personal treasures as well as historical treasures with us. Um, We we also acknowledge um, a number of communities and individuals um, from North Africa who helped us with translations that were incredibly intricate and um, explications that were incredibly uh, intricate. Um, and hinged upon a very um, local and detailed knowledge of, um, of pr- particular wartime dynamics. Um, we th- I think, for example, of a, of a gentleman um, who lives in Southern Morocco, who is um, now in his nineties, um, who, uh, with whom Omar Boom con- conducted an oral history um, and, uh we took an, an excerpt. His name is Al Hussein Al ghaderi and he lives in still to this day in the town of Lach, Lachma, um, excuse me, Lam Hamid um, in Morocco's Anti Atlas Mountains. We took an excerpt of that oral history. Um, about his family's extraordinary experience of um, the hunger that ran rampant in North Africa and in his region in the course of the war. And um, not only do we thank him in the book for his participation as an as a informant, but Omar... Um extraordinarily was able to return to his village and to present him with a copy of the book. And this gentleman in his 90s was so moved to see um, his image in the book, his words in the book, and um, he shared the book with his community in turn. Um, there are also parties in the book who we think who are rather more traditional from a professional perspective, archives, libraries, many colleagues. So this was an unusual project because there was no canon of sources that we could draw on, refine, supplement. We were really seeking to create one for the first time. And that project, that enterprise of trying to create what, what we might call a canon, of course, a canon is ultimately totally flexible, um, took a tremendous amount of, um, of, of help and assistance of, of generous
0: peers. What are the consequences of speaking of the Holocaust and North Africa versus the Holocaust in North Africa? What are the implications belying the assumptions inherent in these different phraseologies?
1: Yeah, thank you. That opens up a lot of complicated and interesting issues. Um, So Omar Boom and I published a first edited volume together also with Stanford University Press. Um, Both books were published with the assistance of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And we titled that first volume, The Holocaust and North Africa. And it is a collection of um, scholarly essays that together try to survey The complicated historical landscape, um, the the literary richness of of sources published at the time of war or soon after, um, the complexities of of memory when it comes to um, the Second World War and um, North African experiences, broadly speaking, um, uh, competing and complex memories that are still contended and being shaped. what does it mean to speak of the Holocaust and North Africa? Well, the um, Nazi regime did never implement it, nor did the French Vichy regime, which which occupied um, um, Morocco and Algeria uh, and um, Tunisia in the course of the war. These regimes never extended their genocidal policies to North Africa. It is possible that they counted North African Jewries among the the numbers. The Nazi regime might have the numbers that they wish to annihilate in a long term plan, as outlined in the Vance conference. But no organized campaign of genocide was carried out in North Africa. Therefore, we find it difficult, although some scholars disagree, but Omar Boom and I find it difficult to write about um, the Holocaust unfolding in North Africa. And yet, and yet, the Holocaust had an impact on North African Jews and on North Africa. There were some Jews and some Muslims deported directly from North Africa to Um, the Nazi camps. And there were other hundreds of other um, Jews who were either born in North Africa and who emigrated or were in mostly in France or in Europe when um, the war broke out and when Germany occupied France, who then became prone to deportation because they were non-French citizens. In addition, There were the children of North African Jewish emigres living in France who technically had French citizenship, but whose citizenship was stripped away because they were the children of immigrants or, as I said, themselves immigrants. So there are cases, and we outline these um, in both volumes, there are cases where it is appropriate to talk about North African Jews' experience of the Holocaust. Um, North African Jews did experience the Holocaust as... um, Deportees, as subjects of forced labor, as subjects of spoliation, uh, victims of the death camps, um, as resistors, as people who participated in the post-war era, in the um, in the meet, um, meeting out of justice um, through testimony and, and other means, and yet I think um, it, it is our estimation as editors of these books that it would be. Um, It would be um, to stretch the conceptual limits of the Holocaust too far to speak of the Holocaust um, engulfing all of North Africa or all of North African Jews. Um, There are other some scholars who take a different approach, but that is um, the approach that we are taking in this volume in both of these
0: two books. What new opportunities for studying the Holocaust have been opened up by the recent normalization of relations between Morocco and Israel? How can Holocaust studies grow from this new situation?
1: Um, I think that the normalization of relations will produce new institutional collaborations, which are extremely interesting. The sharing of archival material, um, the movement of scholars, um, um, co-hosted academic events, um, the, the movement of um, of students and postdocs and faculty and more. Um, of course, this is uh, an abnormal, um, it is not the norm for the region. And we find in, in most parts of the Middle East and North Africa, uh, we find something else entirely, which is that it can be quite um quite difficult for this sort of um, circulation of of ideas of bodies of texts to occur. But this normalization uh, of relations will, I think, have a palpable effect upon um, scholarship and learning. Um, Even before the normalizations of relations between Israel and Morocco, um, Omar Boom has been working um, to conduct translations of works of Jewish studies on Morocco into Arabic and French um, to share them with a mostly Moroccan, not exclusively Moroccan, but mostly Moroccan uh, readership. So that's the example, that's one example of the kinds of um, um, shifts that I think uh, politics can allow for in an otherwise um, fractured, region and world.
0: Many of the sources in this documentary history are religious in nature. In what ways do the religious perspectives presented here contribute to the theological question of where was God in the Holocaust? How can North African experiences and perspectives shed light on this question? What do they say about evil and theodicy that is different than perspectives that are more mainstream in thinking about Holocaust theology or philosophical lessons of the Holocaust?
1: Well, um, I'm not sure that I'm equipped to do that very um, thoughtful question justice. What I I have found in reading through the incredible material um, that we published in wartime North Africa and that we reviewed for consideration, but which did not find its way into print, um is that there are it, it, it should not surprise us that there are so many voices of uh, observant um Jewish women and men and children here, um, nor that there are the voices of rabbis. Often these voices are um expressing incredibly um um let's say quotidian concerns very um, um, plastic um, you know daily concerns I, I will give you an an example um we include um, a remarkable source in wartime north africa um that is written by um um a guetta who was an uh, a libyan jew um who Writes about the challenge of marking the high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in the camp of Sidi Aziz. This is a camp um, created by the Italian fascist regime, to which um, some 2000, uh, sorry, which was one of a, a number of camps to which the Italian fascist regime uh, overseeing Libya deported Jews from um, Libya. They ostensibly deport them, um, so in theory to protect them from the encroachment of British troops, but in fact, their policies likely animated by by anti-Semitism. So um, the author of this book, um, uh, his name is Guetta, which which talks about the fate of interned Libyan Jews in the camps, has um, voices, um, narration around Jews' experience of the days of awe, the 10 most uh, holy days of, of the Jewish calendar. And um, what I want to emphasize here, going back to this idea of how religious concerns can also be quotidian concerns, is that um, in Guetta's words, many of the challenges are about um, the physical um positions that stand in the way of prayer, um, the lack of uh, of Torah scrolls, um, the, the fact that the worshipers are unable to dress in their usual finery for the holidays, to honor the holidays and to reflect um, a, a moment of renewal, but instead are uh, unable to bathe or wash their clothes. Um, he talks about how prayers um, were held in the dark um, because uh, there were wartime regulations about the use of light. So, to me, it's incredibly interesting, and we find this again and again in the sources that we explore for the book "Wartime North Africa." It is incredibly interesting that the that the that religious concerns and concerns we might consider secular are are tightly interwoven. Um, they aren't always on the broadest philosophical scale. Um, and yet there are also sources that, um, speak to a existential duress, um, perhaps not a direct or explicit challenge to, to God or, or to the divine, but to, um, a a a soulful a spiritual deprivation that exceeds um the physical needs that prisoners in camps for example had shoes dental care health care food um sanitation um and more um so I think that what is you asked at the beginning how in, the inclusion of stories from North Africa change our sense of this overall um, existential philosophical dilemma. I would say it, it broadens our, um, our understanding of the spiritual trauma that was effectuated by the Holocaust and by the Second World War. Um, it gives us a diverse array of voices Perspectives to reflect upon the philosophical questions that Jews and other victims of the regime, of uh, the Nazi regime, but also the Vichy French regime and the Italian fascist regime, the questions that, that they asked. Um, so it diversifies our sense of this dilemma, um, rendering it both in very practical terms Uh, but also in the most abstract ones.
0: In what ways are the histories of French North Africa under Vichy France and French West Africa under Vichy France interconnected, if at all? What do your documents reveal?
1: Yeah, so um, this is really interesting. So um, when the Vichy regime is created after uh, Germany occupies uh, most of northern France, and a new regime based in the French city of Vichy is created um, in southern France, uh, ruled by the First World War military hero, hero um, General Marshal Patin. Um, this regime, the Vichy regime, uh, inherits control over uh, and the ability to impose racist and anti Semitic legislation over continental France and over France's colonies in West Africa and in North Africa. Um, so, therefore, it begins to it embark upon um, all of the uh, All of what we see happening to Jews in France will happen in North Africa. Um, They are pushed out of the professions. um, Their property is seized. Um, If they have citizenship, they will lose it. Mostly the Algerian Jews had citizenship and um, the spattering of Jews elsewhere. Um, At the same time, the regime is embarking on a campaign of anti-Blackness and of Islamophobia, which is inherited from... Um, the French Third Republic. Uh, I mentioned earlier the fact that um, young uh, boys and young men from French West Africa and um, who are who are black Africans as well as um, um, local Muslim men from Morocco and other parts of North Africa are pushed into military service. Um, so what is? What is different about these regions, one of the things that is different is that the concentration of Jews is much larger in North Africa than in West Africa. So it is, there are some Jews interned in West Africa, but it is, um, these stories become complementary puzzle pieces to each other. West Africa, for example, will hold a, a camp to which um, uh, a variety of prisoners will be sent, including um um some uh, um, British citizens, including um, sailors and people who were staffed on merchant ships who get caught up in the regime. So we have camps in West Africa, but they're of a slightly different nature. We have West Africans brought to North Africa. Um, we have complementary racist campaigns being rolled out in both region. And then on a very human level, we are finding that these soldiers forced into service was from, from West Africa, the young um African men, sometimes they are called Senegalese soldiers, but they aren't actually only Senegalese. They are, uh, some of them will find themselves overseeing camps with other victims of the regime. So they are both representatives of the regime and victims of the regime. And we will, um, our sources tell us of the extraordinary coincidence of Um, In a single camp, the meeting of these many, many diverse actors who represent the drama of wartime North Africa, refugees, um, local Jews and Muslims, Muslim anti-colonialists, Spanish Republican war volunteers, the, the West African soldiers and many, many more, all actually meeting in a single camp. It's not that conceptually their histories intertwine. It's that they actually are sharing the same space because of the racist logic of the regime. Um, So the West African histories and North African histories of Vichy territories are different, but here in the book we are also emphasizing the ways they intertwine and actually bump into one another.
0: What were the similarities and differences between camps administered by fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, and Vichy France in North Africa? Were different atrocities and forms of torture employed in different camps in these distinct realms of North Africa? Were there innate differences between the way these three countries and regimes managed and ran camps? What were the complementarities and differences in the administration of camps?
1: Well, it's a lot of good questions and I'll I'll do my best. I don't know that I'll be able to answer all of them, um, but um, we do include in the book, Wartime, North Africa, a um, series of maps uh, representing to the best of our abilities, um, the camps that re- stretch across these regions. Um, even within uh, a single a regime, camps can be varied. So the Vichy regime, for example, um, creates a network of camps. There are penal camps, there are concentration camps, there are forced labor camps. There there is the strategy of moving prisoners between camps uh, in order to disorient them. Um, By and large, different kinds of prisoners are sent to different kinds of camps, but sometimes that logic goes haywire. Um, In Tunisia, Um, there will be, uh, French camps for a while. The Nazis also directly occupy Tunisia for a period of months beginning in, um, November, uh, 1942. And there, uh, the regime will focus on, um, sending local Jews to, um, Uh, to to labor camps, labor battalion camps, especially organized around um, municipalities and cities to conduct um, uh, work on infrastructure. Um, The Italian camps are themselves a bit different because they mostly interned um, Italian Jews, as as I mentioned earlier. And these are also distinct in that at a certain point in war, uh, the, uh, the fascist regime will deport these Jews from camps in Libya to camps in Italy and sometimes um, directly to Nazi camps. So that is an unusual distinction as well. One of the things that is a through line across all of these camps is um, that they are sites of dehumanization. There is often, although not always, backbreaking forced labor, Um, disease runs rampant, Uh, inmates are exposed to the elements, they are not given proper sanitation or nutrition. Um, There are families interned, there are children and women interned as well as men. Um, And there are a lot of camps in the sahara especially overseen by the vichy regime some 70 camps um many of which are on mines or on um the route of a, a rail line that had been um that was first the brainchild so to speak uh, i mean the diabolical brainchild of the french third republic and then becomes a project of the vichy regime with the vision of building a, a rail that will connect um Uh, Sub-Saharan and uh, Western Africa um, to the Mediterranean by rail. And during the Second World War, this becomes especially important as a a vehicle that might ferry uh, men to war, uh, forced Senegalese um, infantrymen to the front lines. Um, So through these... Saharan camps we also find um, particularly um, backbreaking labor. You mentioned corporeal punishment and yes there's a lot of examples of this as well um, that we talk about in the book. But I could say much more. There there are really fascinating histories about the porous nature of camps that sometimes these camps are built right next to or very close to local towns, including in the Sahara. And some of those towns have Jewish communities. And so there is this curious... results um, that Jews as well as Muslims from surrounding regions are selling things to people in the camps. There's a, there's an amazing testimony um, written originally in Yiddish by a former um, Russian Jewish volunteer for the Spanish Civil War who ends up in a, a, a Vichy Saharan labor camp who writes about um, a, a comrade of his uh, also a Spanish, uh, a volunteer of the Spanish Republican Army who who dies, who is Jewish, and he dies. And he is buried by the Jewish community of the neighboring town in a Jewish cemetery in the Sahara. So the stories abound. And what I would what I would want to emphasize is that while we can talk about typologies of incarceration across North Africa during wartime, there's also tremendous diversity. Um, because these the nature of strategies of internment are shifting and are already different, whether we speak of the Vichy regime, the Nazi regime, or the fascist regime, and are shifting in dialogue with the unfolding events of war.
0: What do the documents in this volume teach us about food consumption in the camps? What would people eat? How did malnutrition and famine manifest?
1: That's a really interesting question. so famine is a question that we actually paid quite a lot of attention to in um in writing this book um partly because in north africa as across the globe um hunger had long been a uh, a symbol of the inequities wrought by colonialism as well as being a calamity it's a it's a it's a physical and health calamity. It's a social calamity, but it is also had long been a symbol of inequities wrought by colonialism. This was true before the war. And um this point had been brought to the world through the writing of um Albert Camus, uh, who grew up in a in a settler colonial family in Algeria, who wrote about the devastating effects of famine in Algeria, for example. And after the war, it will also be, um, a really important um, symbol and uh, manifestation of power abuses that will be utilized in the writing of a whole generation of post-colonial writers and anti-colonial r- writers from Muhammad Deeb to France Fanon. Um, so hunger is a, a powerful um, force on, on, a, on a physical level. It also is a, a profound um, product of um, state abuse. And in um, in North Africa, there is um, famine that is brought on because of state policy, state policy that diverts foodstuffs from North African locals, either to representatives of state in the region, soldiers and so on, uh, or that diverts that food to continental France. Um, And um, hunger and deprivation will actually follow the countries of North Africa into the post-war period. Um, um, But during the war, poverty and hunger are ubiquitous. Um, whether whether you are in a camp, as you asked about, or whether you are on um, the home front, um, this is an is just simply an endemic aspect of war, and it's it's paired with drought. It's paired with crop failure. It's paired with a, de- a typhoid epi- a typhus epidemic. Um, And all of these elements combined have a role in contributing to anti-colonial sentiment and ultimately to um, consolidating nationalist movements across the region. So we can talk about the camps and we can talk about hunger in the camps, but it is equally important to situate um, that state Sanctioned state-imposed famine to situate it in context with a whole regional crisis around food that was um, felt acutely by families um, and by individuals, and also came to be a potent symbol of um, uh, of what occupation meant.
0: Many of the personal stories documented here are moving and fascinating. I'd be curious. Can you tell us more? about Shoshana Arviv, What did she experience? What is unique about her story? Sure.
1: Um, I'm going to open the book to her words. Um, So Omar Boom and I, in compiling these documents, very much wanted to represent Um, an array of perspectives. And both of us are are really interested in children's experience of war. Shoshana Arviv was a young girl um, during the course of the war. Um, And uh, she was among the Jewish community of um, Libya, who I spoke about before. Um, Her community, Uh, suffered the imposition of anti-Jewish legislation imposed by Mussolini's fascist Italy. Um, This takes place as of uh, 1938. Um, Then there are deportation orders um, with the property of many Libyan Jews being confiscated. Um, And many of the Jews who are displaced from Libya are sent to labor and internment camps, um, including a camp known as Jado, which is the site of a a former military post. And it is there to which um, Shoshana Arziz is um, Arviv, excuse me, is sent. Um, it's estimated that. Um, um, let me see if I have the numbers in front of me of how many um were sent to that particular camp I, I, um i'm not sure of actually the total numbers but it is estimated that um at least 500 would die from from for from famine um and uh from disease and from the hardships of forced labor in this particular camp in any case to get back to shoshana Arvive, she writes in a testimony about her family's expulsion from her native home of Tripoli, about their journey to Giado, about her experience of internment in this um, truly miserable environment. And we decided to segment from her longer narration um, a passage that really reflects the experience of a young girl, suffering the deprivations of internment and the humiliation of deportation and um, the trauma of loss. And she is interviewed in the account um, presented here um, by uh, by interviewer, and she dwells upon certain very um, concrete things um, that to me, speak so powerfully about a young girl's experience of war. For example, um, she speaks about the pain of her, the emotional pain of her hair um, being shorn. Um, she is sick with typhus in the camp Um, everyone has lice they um, and the overseers come um, to shave everyone she says and she she says to the interviewer in in a selection that we excerpt in the book she had beautiful curls that stretched to her lower back and after they shaved her head the children Um, ran away and hid um, with the pain, with the the trauma, with the humiliation of this. And um, we were so moved by um, the way in which a childhood in a camp could be remembered um, and how this young girl Recalled the fact that everyone in the camp around her, her entire community, her entire family, now had no hair. Um, she says it, the men, the women, the children, her grandmother, um, and they asked, "Why did you have to shave our heads? We we didn't see any lice." Um, and she emphasizes how much um, she remembers and she mourns um, this this episode. So. Uh, Arviv's story um reminds us you know what one holocaust historian has written of um uh of europe um she um writes about how they suffered um the same hell but different horrors uh and i think that that is such a such a telling phrase when we think about how children experience war differently, women experience war differently. Um, You know, people uh, are navigating through myriad manifestations of the same larger phenomenon.
0: Another story that I found rather moving was that of Dr. Marcel Lufrani. What can you tell us about him? What does his testimony reveal? about the experiences of doctors in camps? And what does he teach us about the relationship between Jewish and Muslim doctors?
1: Thank you. Um, So Marcel Lufani was um, an Algerian Jew, and he was, uh, as you say, a doctor. Um, Jews were quite well represented in the medical profession, um, not only in Algeria, but uh, across the region before the war, but especially in Algeria. And um, the Vichy regime in 1941 imposes a quota on the medical profession as well as other professions, pushing Jews out of this arena. But at the same time that that quota is being shaped, um, a typhus epidemic is surging in Algeria and Tunisia, um, and this quota threatens to cripple the medical profession and um, it actually promotes an explosion of typhoid that will really um, rock poor Muslim and Jewish communities, especially those that have uh, limited medical resources or or vaccination protocols. So Marcel Lufrani, the doctor that you mentioned, um, gathers together with two colleagues. They are both um, Muslim doctors, uh, Sadan and Bumali, and they draft a petition and they call for uh muslims to support the reintroduction of jews into the medical sector to serve precisely to serve the large population of muslim patients who are at risk of typhoid and they circulate this document and it is signed by um a number of uh, muslim doctors um and um this collection this informal collection of medical professionals are also um, telling Dr. Lufrani that they can count on the loyalty of um, a man who is then an up-and-coming politician and a pharmacist, um, Ferhat Abbas, who who, who is eventually the, the future first president of the National Assembly of Algeria, um, as well as another doctor who's a deputy to the French National Assembly. So we we learn about this because the French regime... Is basically spying on these um, on these people. They they view them as um, folks who are engaged in um, activities that are troublesome for the state, um, and that is how we have learned about this extraordinary moment of um, intra-professional collaboration and um, the support of Muslims for um the the lessening of an- the anti-semitic uh legislation meted out on their jewish uh, peers
0: you know I'm asking about a third individual um what can you tell us about mohammed areski berkani what's distinct about his story
1: mm-hmm. yeah this is actually quite extraordinary um so mohammed berkani Berkhani um, writes one of the only firsthand accounts by a Muslim who experiences the camps of North Africa that scholars have been able to uncover. I hope that we will find more in the future, um, but Berkani's words are very rare because for the moment, um, they represent the only such source. Berkani was... Um, He was an active member of a political organization known as the North African Star. And um, its leader, Massali Haji, called for Algerians to resist colonial uh, rule. It had been in existence since the 1920s. But by the era of the Second World War, this organization had dissolved. Burkhani was in a different organization known as the Algerian People Party, Um, And he becomes involved in other forms of political resistance against the French colonial authorities. And then once the Vichy regime is um, put into place against the Vichy um, rule as well. The Vichy administration um, in North Africa um, was very nervous about um, the possible strength of anti-colonial actors. They imprisoned Berkhani in a labor camp, um, which is in the Algerian Sahara. Um, and he is joined there by other Muslim, anti-colonial activists, political activists, as, including communists um, uh, and others who were, were part of the same um, uh, political parties that Berkani was. Berkani writes a memoir after being released from this camp, um, and as I say, it's incredibly rare because it focuses on the perspective of Muslim internees in the Vichy Saharan camps. Many of the other sources that we are able to to um, offer to English language readers in this book, wartime North Africa, reflects. Um, the voices of North African Jews, of European refugees, um, of others who found their way into these camps by complex routes, But Berkhani's voice is distinct um, in this regard. And, and in the section that we offer in the book, he um, talks about the marking of Muslim daily prayers in the camp and the attempt to observe um. Eid, one of the most important feast days of the Muslim calendar. Um, and he writes quite poignantly, it returns us really to your question about the existential and religious despair, um, that arises among those interned in North Africa. Um, he, he speaks about the, the agony of these people who, mind you, some of whom are communists, some of whom, um, whose political or- orientation might suggest that they wouldn't, um, fret about, uh, a a, a constriction of religious expression in the camps. But as Berkani says, um, they are even the communist comrades are um, some of, of whom have religious desires. Some of them actually object to Muslim peers in the camps trying to conduct morning prayers. So we have all kinds of interesting political and religious tensions within that um, within that population of interned um, Muslims. Um, but Birkhani's voice is 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 incredibly um important because it stands for many other voices um, that have not been, to our knowledge, recorded and preserved.
0: You earlier on to the Jadu camp. How did the documents in your book contribute to our understanding of the conditions in Jadu? Can you elaborate on what maybe learned about Jadu through your book?
1: Um, well, this is the camp um that I was referring to uh earlier. Um, that uh you're talking about the camp in Libya, Jadu, yes. yeah. Um that Shoshana Arviv was interned in. Um I would say that while precious little has been known by English language readers about North African experiences of the Second World War. The experience of Libyan Jews is perhaps especially um, has been overlooked within that frame. And for this reason, it is so important for us to to tell the story of this of this particular camp, um, Jadu. Um, because this really represents the systematic assault on an entire Jewish community in a way that was not mirrored in Morocco, in Tunisia, um, in Algeria. That is not to say that entire communities in these places were not affected by anti-Jewish legislation, were not affected by Um, strategies of internment and spoliation and more. They were. But in Libya, it is distinct that we have, you know, the entire Libyan Jewish community essentially deported to a number of camps, including Giado. So I I would say um, the inclusion of these camps within the broader story of um, Holocaust era, World War II era assaults on Jews is is simply essential. And our erasure of that story and our erasure of this geography really threatens to not only exclude victims from the historical record, but also threatens to cheat us of understanding this um, assault on, on Jewry, this assault on political enemies of the fascist regimes of Europe in its fullest form. Um, so for that reason, stories of Giotto are... Uh, particularly needed by, for students of, of the war of North Africa and
0: of the Holocaust. What are some new directions in Holocaust research that you would like to see inspired by this volume? What are some extensions pertaining to Morocco, Libya, Tunisia, and Algeria you would like to see students and future scholars engage in? Can you share some topics you'd, love, you'd like to see addressed by a new generation of researchers?
1: Well, I would say two things, although there is much to be said, but let me offer two. Um, One is that North Africa is um, a special context because here it is the only place other than the island of Rhodes in Europe where Nazi policy overlays and intersects with colonial history. And it's not just Nazi policy. It's also Vichy French policy and Italian fascist policy is overlaying and intersecting with colonial history. And I think that that is fascinating and um, has a lot of um, nuances that result from it and broad questions that are raised by it that deserve to be discussed. Um, When I think about uh, wartime North Africa, the second thing I would say is that To the extent that this story has entered a mainstream conversation about the Second World War or about the Holocaust, it is through the lens of military campaigns. And indeed, the military campaign of Operation Torch, November 1942, which brings um, Anglo-American forces to North Africa, uh, to Morocco, and to Algeria. And from there, they will travel eastward. ultimately winding their way to Europe through Sicily, this military campaign is incredibly important for turning the tide of war. And yet to focus on military campaigns as the epicenter of action in North Africa during the war is to cheat us of of understanding so many other ways in which the war was experienced, was witnessed, was commentated on um, and unfolded on the ground. And I think Omar Boom and I have been particularly drawn to these social dynamics, such as the stories that you have invited us to, um, to quickly dive into here. Those stories are so much more numerous than our book was able to cover, and there are so many sources awaiting our exploration, sources that point to not only experiences of the war, but much deeper realities of um, cultural life in North Africa prior to the war, um, memories of the war, memorialization in the war, um, uh, recovery, um, the lasting trauma, and, and so much more. Um, so these are themes that I hope, um, that, uh, you know, a new generation of, of, of scholarship and scholars will continue to explore.
0: As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about what you're working on now or next subsequent to this project?
1: Well, um, Omar and I have left these this book with so many um, questions and fascinations that aren't fully resolved for us and I think one of the kinds of stories that continues to um um vex and fascinate us is the story of these um the boys and young men uh from West Africa who's whose experience of the war is 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 truly uh, extraordinary um and we have recently found a trove of visual documentation suggesting that um as as specialists will already know um these so-called tirailleurs um well they have different names but these these forcibly conscripted soldiers from the empire um often were accompanied by women and sometimes those women had children as they served and as they were um, stationed um not only in north africa but sometimes also in europe so i would be deeply fascinated to continue to explore their story um and consider how it unexpectedly interwove with the histories of North African Jews um, and Muslims um, and indeed um, Europeans as well.
0: Wonderful, I wish you much luck in this subsequent project and would just like to stress my absolute gratitude for all the sacrifice and investment that went to bringing this documentary history into availability for all of us.
1: Thank you so much for a wonderful conversation.
0: Much appreciated. Thank you. To our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books Network and the New Books and Jewish Studies channel, Ari Barbalat. I've been blessed to be in dialogue today with Dr. Sarah Abravaya stein We have been discussing her newly edited volume, which she co-edited with Dr. Omar Boom, Wartime North Africa, a Documentary History, 1934 to 1950 published by Stanford University Press 2022. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.